0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. To summarize, those of you who haven't been with us either at all or regularly, we're going through the book of Acts in the New Testament. It was written about 2,000 years ago by a disciple named Luke. He was a Christian. He was an associate of the Apostle Paul, friend also a physician by profession, but also became a missionary and traveled a little bit with the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago. And he was also a scholar, highly educated, and he was moved by the Spirit of God to write down the account of the beginnings of the Christian church 2,000 years ago. And so he put together a two-volume work called The Gospel of Luke and The Book of Acts. They go together covering the beginning of Jesus's, actually his birth, his ministry, and then the beginning of the church. All the way up until the time where the Apostle Paul was almost uh, completed his ministry in about 60 A.D. And so the book of Acts really concentrates on the beginning of the church, how it started um, in fulfillment of Jesus' work and prophecies. The first 12 chapters were highlighting the ministry of the Apostle Peter as he laid the foundation of the church in Jerusalem among the Jews. And then from there, 13 on to the rest of the book is really highlighting. The Apostle Paul's ministry, who was a special p- apostle to the Gentiles. That just means the rest of the world of those outside of Jerusalem, uh, really getting that gospel out to new places, to new people, really to pagans, to Gentiles who weren't really familiar with Christianity. Some, some, maybe many had never even heard of Christianity. And so we are now in chapter 19. So in chapter from chapter 13 to 19, we've been looking at the ministry of the Apostle Paul, who up to this point... He went on, he's on his third missionary journey, where he goes, departs from his home church, travels thousands of miles for a couple of years at a time, plants churches in various cities, and then comes back. And now he's on his third missionary journey, and that's where we are in Acts 19. Uh, so this third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul lasts about close to three years. The unique thing about this missionary journey we talked about is he spends most of his time in one city, which was... Unique and different for his missionary journeys. Spends most of his time in the city of Ephesus. It was a strategic decision to do that because Ephesus was such a significant city. It was one of the most important, largest, significant cities in the Roman Empire of that time. Today, if you looked on a map and you looked at Turkey on the west coast, kind of a harbor city, that's where Ephesus is today. Actually, some of you have actually been to and visited the city of Ephesus. I have been told, and even sent me pictures. That's an amazing opportunity. Um, so that's where the region is at. Two thousand years ago, like I said, it was a major city in the Roman Empire, known for its uh, commercial work. Also, it was a large city. Over they say two hundred to two hundred fifty thousand people lived in Ephesus when Paul was there. It was a Gentile city. It was a pagan city. In terms of its religion worldviews and philosophy highly influenced by the Greeks and their idols and religion and mythology along with the Romans and all of their paganism so it was rampant in terms of idolatry idols temples temples to all kinds of gods temples to emperors like I said rampant sexual immorality proliferated all throughout the city And people from all over the world were traveling there by sea, coming and going for commercial business. And so there were actually false practices and worldviews being brought constantly through Ephesus. So this was an ideal place for Paul to bring the gospel to new people, people who have never heard of Christianity before. But it was also strategic for Paul because he knew people were always coming and going uh, by virtue of their travel. And so if he could just stay and find a place that would be a hub for Christianity in Ephesus. Theoretically, the longer he stayed in Ephesus, he could get the gospel out if people come short time, get saved, and then send them off as ambassadors to wherever they came from, literally all over the world. And that strategy paid off, and we're going to see that in today's passage. And from the time the Apostle Paul came there in about 52 to 55 A.D., The impact that Paul had, that's the longest he ever stayed at a church that he planted, by the way. He was able to build up some very strong leadership, a very solid foundation of a church community and in surrounding areas. As a matter of fact, we believe that the seven churches of Revelation there in Asia Minor were planted during the time of Paul's ministry here. Uh, Colossae and Smyrna, Thyatira, Laodicea. Hierapolis is another church we know from Colossians. So all these churches were probably established during Paul's ministry there. And Paul pastored there in Ephesus at the church. Timothy pastored for a while and served in Ephesus at the church. John the apostle served for a while. I mean, what a what a heritage! The city of Ephesus ended up having, and actually, for the next several centuries, the city of Ephesus became one of the most significant uh, churches in the history of the Christian church, especially at its beginning. So that's just a little bit about Ephesus and, and how important it was. So let's go ahead and look at, Paul, at the beginning of Paul's ministry here. Uh, we saw last week or before that, on from Acts 18, Paul, by way of background, Paul did stop by through Ephesus on his second missionary journey going back to Jerusalem. But it was a brief stop. Could have just been days or maybe a week. And the one thing he did there when he had a very short time, he decided to go into the synagogue for the first time in Ephesus, because there was a significant number of Jews, they weren't Christians yet, he went in there and he preached from the Old Testament Scriptures. And instead of getting angry at him, it says they were very interested and they pleaded with him to stay and preach some more. And he said, no, I can't, but Lord willing, I'll be able to return. And so then he left. Months went by. Then he actually comes back. So the Lord did well, and that's where we are now. After Paul left, or from the time that Paul visited and was able to return, God also blessed the city of Ephesus and the synagogue with Aquila and Priscilla, who were Christians, and they came with Paul to Ephesus. Paul left them in Ephesus, and so no doubt they were making disciples in Paul's absence, Aquila and Priscilla. Interesting. Even though they were Christians, they were Jewish, they were Christians, they continued to go to the synagogue. So they didn't just bail on all things Jewish once they got saved. And apparently they were accepted in the synagogue for months. And then they met a man named Apollos who was Jewish, mighty in the scriptures, didn't have the fullness of the gospel, but he was also teaching in the synagogue correctly from Old Testament scriptures and things he heard through and from John the Baptist's disciples somehow. So a foundation was being laid by God in the city of Ephesus that would culminate, come to fruition, when the Apostle Paul came back, and that's where we are in Acts 19. So let's go ahead and look at it. Today we're looking at verses 8 through 20. Chapter 19 is actually a long chapter, and a lot happens in the city of Ephesus over the course of two-plus years with the Apostle Paul. The first thing that happened we saw last week, and that was 1 through 7, where Paul came in the second time into the city of Ephesus and meets 12 Jewish men who are, or 12 men who say they're believers, but they're disciples of John the Baptist and they hadn't heard the fullness of the gospel yet or been baptized as Christians. So Paul gives them the gospel. They believe, they embrace it, and then Paul baptizes them. And so now he's got 12 new, well-informed, committed Christian men by his side. That's a a great uh, group of folks to continue to plant a church in the city. So no doubt they were probably significant in helping Paul so that was last week. So now we pick up after these 12 men get saved and baptized. Uh, we were look at 8 through 20. The title of the sermon today is, I put, The Word Spreads in Ephesus. The Word Spreads. Coming from a couple of verses, in particular, verse 20. In summarizing the ministry of Paul, at the beginning of Ephesus, it says, So the Word of the Lord, that means biblical truth, or Paul's preaching. Paul's preaching about Jesus, preaching of the gospel, preaching the true meaning of the Old Testament, the word of the Lord, scripture, divine revelation from Paul was growing mightily. What does that mean? People were, well, growing mightily. Paul was getting the word out. He wasn't shut down. So he's being very successful at getting the seeds planted or getting the word out. And he, God just blessed him because he was able to preach the word of God every single day, four to five hours a day in a lecture hall or school that he was allowed to have or, or rent. We'll see that in the passage. And he did that for two years, every single day. Can you imagine going to Bible college for two years and for five hours a day, you get to hear the Apostle Paul teach through Romans. That would be amazing. Or the whole New Testament. That's what he was doing for two solid years. So that the word of God was going out. Not only was it going out, people were responding positively and believing it. Like I said, Paul didn't get shut down or chased out of the city or beat up yet. He's allowed to get the word of god out, and so the church disciples are believing and the church is beginning to grow so the word of god is going out and it's going out mightily and it's prevailing and ephesus is just becoming a rock solid church and these people when they first get saved they're zealous and they love jesus and they love the truth and they love the church and they love each other it's just an awesome church when it started out we know 30 years later when paul or john wrote revelation jesus said oops church at Ephesus remember 30 years ago when you got saved how fresh and new and awesome everything was and you had soft and tender hearts and you love fellow Christians and you love sinners and you love God and you love Jesus and well, oh your love has grown cold but that's not how they started out so it's amazing ministry so the word spreads in Ephesus let's so let's go ahead and look and see how God blessed the ministry of the apostle Paul Ministry of the Apostle Paul, for he was first and foremost a preacher of the word and teacher of Scripture. That was his job description. He was not a social worker. He was not a soup kitchen coordinator. He was not called to meet out social justice in the world. He was not called to transform the culture. It's real simple. He was called to preach Jesus. And he did that faithfully. Let's go ahead and look at that. And God honors and blesses that that ministry. Uh, I got four points here just to kind of summarize this narrative passage as it goes through and tells the story. And we'll take it a section at a time. Let's look at the first point there. And that's the priority of the word. For the Apostle Paul, the priority of the word already mentioned that his ministry was very simple in terms of the job description. S- simple, not simple in carrying it out. It tremendous opposition, hardship, sacrifice, suffering, rejection, isolation, sorrow, sadness, tears, weeping, depression. Just read 2 Corinthians and you'll see that was what characterized Paul on a personal basis. But in terms of the job description, it's very simple. Paul just preach the word, preach the gospel, disciple people, establish churches. And Paul never lost focus in the midst of the busyness of church life. He never lost focus. He knew the priority was to preach the word, the priority of the word of God, teaching scripture. That's what I mean by that. Preaching drives ministry. How do you start a church? How do you plan a church? How do you begin a Bible study? It all centers around the Bible and teaching the Bible. You don't decide to start a Bible study or start a church or a ministry around, well, let's. what activity should we do? Then when we get a bunch of people, we'll start teaching the Bible. That isn't how it works in the New Testament. That wasn't Paul's way. He started with teaching and preaching, and God always blessed that as a result. So the priority for Paul was always teaching the Word of God. Let's go ahead and look at point number one. That's 8 through 10. So after seeing these 12 men get saved graciously, beginning of his ministry there at Ephesus, it says he entered the synagogue. He had been there before, familiar teacher. He's complying with their request. Oh, uh, Paul of Tarsus. Or Tarsus, sorry, Paul of Tarsus. Uh, Saul was his former name. Come, teach in our synagogue again. We heard you teach before. You said some very interesting things. It was probably a very, one of the larger Jewish synagogues in existence in the day by virtue of the population of the people. So Paul agrees and he comes into the synagogue. Remember, historically, what we've seen on the first two missionary journeys, every time Paul comes into a city, usually he finds he tries to find the synagogue first start with the Jews. Salvation to the Jew first, then the Greek. That was God's strategy. The Jews were the conduit to pour his blessing on everybody else. Find a synagogue if they have one. He preaches there and usually they get mad at the things that he says because he brings up Jesus and then they Chase him out, kick him out, shut him down. That's typically what happens. It's kind of unique at Ephesus because he's allowed to teach week after week after week in the synagogue uh, up to three months. So verse 8, and he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months. That was unique. That was rare. It's like, wow, three months. They embraced him initially. This is good. He's off to a good start. Maybe the, the Jews here will actually embrace his message. So it's a little hopeful. What was he doing? Speaking. So that's preaching. So it's verbal content, reasoning, and persuading. And then the word reasoning is also used in nine reasoning, dialogue, dialogue. So it's, it's verbal communication. So he's, he's preaching, he's proclaiming, he's communicating truth verbally. He doesn't have the convenience of a slideshow. Uh, he's not, not putting on a puppet show or the theater. It is just that old school preaching, communicating verbally with the gift that God had get him, given him through verbal communication. Also, the idea of reasoning is that he's addressing their thought life. He's not appealing to their emotions. That's the key on all these words that are being used in Paul's ministry. He's addressing their intellect. He's challenging them, confronting Them and exposing them to truth on an intellectual level. So that's what Christianity is. It's a religion about truth, intellectual truth, universal transcendent truth, and it's of the mind. It's not a religion about experience or intuition or mystical experiences or emotion. It's an appeal intellectually to the mind about truth. And that's what Paul does all the time. That's what these words mean. He is reasoning. He is persuading. He's looking at the Old Testament. He's explaining it. They say that they know the Old Testament. He's highlighting, explaining, opening up and showing them, yes, these are your Old Testament scriptures. We say we all believe in them. We believe in Yahweh. Look at all these promises Yahweh made about a coming Messiah. I know who the Messiah is. And I want to introduce you to him today. He is Jesus of Nazareth. And then that's where they got a little haywire and said, whoa, wait a minute. And the more Paul talked about Jesus of Nazareth, that he was the only way to heaven, that he was God, literally incarnate, God in a human body. He lived without sin. He is the fulfillment. He's the only fulfillment. He's the only way to heaven. He died on a cross as a criminal. That was highly offensive to the Jews and a stumbling block. Well, what do you mean he was crucified? Deuteronomy says only criminals and guilty people are crucified. How can the Savior, who is sinless and God's Messiah, be crucified? That doesn't make sense. You're contradicting Old Testament truth. Paul, what are you saying? So their ire began to grow the more Paul expounds on the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And most of them, the majority of them, they can't handle it. They don't get it. They are hardened. They are darkened. They're spiritually blind. They are full of pride, religious pride. And that is the most hardening kind of pride, by the way, usually is religious pride. Someone who's really zealous about their religion, and it's a false religion, they are so single-minded focused. They aren't open to anything else. No, I know the truth. I got a corner on the truth. I know truth more than everybody else, and they're usually the ones that are, the most prideful and can't see. And that's true of many of these Jews in this synagogue. As Paul's trying to reason and explain and persuade them, no, Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament, so of your Old Testament. Embrace him. He's your Savior. This is the promise God's been making for thousands of years. The day is here. And giving them the invitation, no doubt. Well, and what's he re- what is the content of what he's preaching? I already said he's preaching about Jesus who was the promised Messiah, but specifically it says in verse 8, for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Well, that's interesting. Because uh, it doesn't say he was preaching that Jesus was the Messiah, which actually it says in other passages. But here it says he was preaching about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, what does that entail? That's a good question. and um, always makes for a good discussion when talking to Christians and people who've been reading the Bible a long time. A lot of Christians can't quite wrap their brain around or define what the kingdom of God is. It's hard to define if you think about it. Let me ask you some questions to see what you know about the kingdom of God, especially those of you who are Christians and have been believers and know the Bible. I'm just going to run through a flurry of questions about the kingdom of God. Don't answer them out loud, but just think. First of all, what is the kingdom of God? How could you define it? How would you define it if you were asked? In one sentence, define the kingdom of God. Jesus asked that question in Luke 13:18. To Jews, he said, what shall we say about the kingdom of God? He was challenging them. Can you define the kingdom of God? Because many of them couldn't. Did the kingdom of when did the kingdom of God begin? Was it in the Old Testament or is it just a New Testament thing? Are we today in the kingdom of God? If you're a Christian. Is it a present reality or a future reality or is it a past reality? Is being in the kingdom of God a spiritual thing? Is it a political thing? Is it a earthly thing? Is it a heavenly thing? Is it an invisible thing? Is it a a visible thing? Those are all good questions. Is it on earth? Is it in heaven? Was Israel a part of the kingdom of God? Is the church a part of the kingdom of God? Is the church synonymous with the kingdom of God? Was Israel synonymous with the kingdom of God? It says Paul is preaching the kingdom of God. We got to know what it is. Is the kingdom of God completely manifest today? If I were to ask you, so are you a member of the kingdom of God? Be interesting to see what you say. Well, yes, I am. Are you a complete member of the kingdom of God? Well, yeah, I think so. So, is the kingdom of God completely manifest today on earth? Well, yeah, I think. So. Well, I'm. Not, yeah. Well, I'm not. Well, that's good. Anyway. So it's not easy to answer. Is the kingdom of God completely manifest today? Or is there a fullness of the kingdom of God coming later we don't experience now? So it it is very complex. And there's no short of of information on kingdom of God. It's in the Old Testament. And it goes throughout the whole Bible. God has a lot to say about the kingdom of God. Matthew talks about the kingdom of God 53 times in his gospel. Luke, dozens of times. Mark, dozens of times. uh, John, only three times. But the rest of the New Testament, dozens of times. So hundreds of times the New Testament talks about what the kingdom of God is. And this is what Paul was preaching. If you look at Acts 28, the last couple verses of the book of Acts, it summarizes Paul's ministry and it says he was preaching. What did he do? He was preaching the kingdom of God. What was the essence of Paul's ministry? He was a preacher of the kingdom of God. Well, I thought he was preaching about Jesus and the gospel. Yes. But the kingdom of God is very... Complex has many dimensions. I would say uh, that we are in the kingdom of God right now on earth if you're a Christian. But I would also say there are facets and manifestations of the kingdom of God that we are not experiencing yet that we will experience in the future after we die and go to heaven. There's a fullness to the kingdom of God yet to come. And that's clear from Jesus's teaching. He said very clearly many times in the Gospels, repent and believe the good news of the kingdom. And the kingdom is in your midst. The kingdom is in your midst. And then later, many times, Matthew 28 and other places, Jesus said, in the future after you die, if you know God, then you will enter into his kingdom. So there's a future component. There's a present component. There's a spiritual realities to the kingdom. And then there are physical, political, literal earthly components to the kingdom that is clear from the Old Testament. Most of the Old Testament descriptions of the kingdom have to do with things happening on the earth. But a big emphasis in Jesus's part was emphasizing the spiritual components of the kingdom. And so to summarize everything and kind of synthesize it, the easiest way to talk about the kingdom of God is the kingdom of God is wherever Jesus's reign and dominion is being recognized and obeyed. The kingdom of God all has to do with how you relate to the king. So when you summarize everything and saying the kingdom of God is about Jesus, the Messiah, which means king, and how you relate to him. And if you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again, Jesus said. What Jesus meant was you can't know me, Jesus, as the king and live under my guidance and sovereign rule as the king of the universe unless you're spiritually born again. Believe in me and believe in my gospel. So there's a spiritual component and there are physical components as well. So if you know Jesus, then you know the king. And you are in the kingdom. Matthew 13 and many other places. Uh, I think of Colossians 1, I love that one, that he talks to Christians and says, you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness by believing in Jesus and have been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. Through salvation. So that is the, so it is a mouthful. It is huge. But if you know Jesus, you're in the kingdom. If you don't know Jesus this morning, you're not in the kingdom. You're not in the kingdom of God. You're in the kingdom of darkness, according to Colossians 1. You're in the kingdom of Satan, according to John 8. That's frightening. And this is what Paul was preaching. He was putting the emphasis on Jesus is King. Jesus is Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the only way. He is the only means of salvation. They were infuriated. Verse 9. But when some of the Jews in the synagogue were becoming hardened, in the middle voice in the Greek it means they began hardening themselves with unbelief. They did it to themselves. They were guilty. They weren't hardened externally. They were hardened by their own unbelief and rejection of Scripture and the truth and because of the love of their own sin, according to John 3.19. That's how it works. You harden yourself. You hear, you hear, you hear. And you resist, you resist, you resist. Every time the word of God goes out, it creates one of two things. Hardening or softening. Condemnation or life. And then finally, it revealed their hearts. The truth that they heard. They became hardened. What followed from that? So they hardened their heart. Then they disobeyed. They became disobedient to the word. Then they became disrespectful. Then they became angry. Then that anger turned into hatred, and that hatred was going to manifest itself in violence towards Paul. That's how it works. So when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil, then they began to speak evil of the way. What way? Jesus is the way. Paul's way. Christianity was the way. They began to speak. Not just not believing. Oh, yeah, that's good for you. Oh, that's fine for you. That's one of many. That doesn't No. That is evil. That is wrong. Christianity is illegitimate. It is a deception. It is blasphemous. Get out of our synagogue. That's really what's going on here. Speaking evil of the way or Christianity before the people, this was public. Then Paul had enough, you know, okay, wow. I remember Jesus said, boy, they don't listen. Then you dust the sand, or the dirt off your shoes and leave. And that's where he got to at that point. Uh, so he withdrew from them. He left the synagogue and he took the disciples with him. Those who actually believed him were soft towards him. He took them. Okay, guys, let's go. We've got to find a new place to teach. And he did. God honored them. So he took the disciples and he was reasoning uh, daily in the school of Tyrannus. So apparently some teacher, professor who was local there who owned a school classroom and it was vacant at certain times of the day. His name was Tyrannus, which means tyrant. Wait, some of you probably had a college professor like that. I don't know if his mommy named him that tyrant when he came out of the womb or his professors named that after they were given his assignments but anyway, that was his name school of the tyrant and so this guy lets paul use that school for two years and paul is just in there every day evangelizing teaching raising up christians and also causing anger for those who don't believe verse 10 this took place for two solid years in addition to the three years he was in the synagogue so that all who lived in asia Heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Literally, all of uh, Asia Minor, Turkey, right there, word went out, churches were established, people were coming and going from all over the world, from sea travel, and the word of God was spreading across all of Asia. Absolutely amazing. So that is the priority of the word. Uh, Let's look at number two, the proof of the word, the proof of the word validated by apostolic uh, miracles. So the apostle Paul, remember in his day, He wrote 13 epistles in the New Testament. John and Peter wrote their epistles after Paul did most of his ministry. So a chunk of the New Testament doesn't even exist when Paul is preaching in Ephesus and trying to establish a church. So it's not like, okay, go home and read your New Testament and come back next week. They didn't have one. Hence, point number two, the proof of the word. Well, how do they know what Paul is saying is true? How do they know he's not another false itinerant pseudo teacher preacher that was common in those days? People were coming and going all the time proclaiming to be prophets. How was Paul, how could they discern that Paul was true? He was really sent from God and what he was saying was legitimate. They couldn't compare his words with the New Testament. They could with the Old Testament, but it was quite a challenge. And so God gave Spiritual gifts, God gives spiritual gifts to every Christian. If you're a Christian, you have a spiritual gift. We know this. God gave the Apostle Paul many spiritual gifts. And many of the spiritual gifts God gave Paul were supernatural sign gifts of a miraculous nature to validate that he actually spoke divine revelation and new prophecy from God as an apostle. That's what an apostle was. 2 Corinthians twelve twelve. write it down. 2 Corinthians twelve twelve, and Romans 15, 18, 19 where it says very clearly that the signs of an apostle, or you could say the credentials of an apostle, are signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. Meaning signs, wonders, and mighty deeds are not the credentials of your average, ordinary Christian. It was unique, and those were the signs of an apostle. And Paul was an apostle, and he was given the ability to do signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. Those were part of his credentials as an apostle, to validate that he was just as authoritative as Peter when Peter spoke. This is how God validated the truth of uh, Old Testament prophets. Thus saith the Lord, prove it. And many times God gave them the ability to do an amazing miracle they'd never seen before in their life and would never see again. So God validated his word through his people, including Jesus, with signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. And that was true of the Apostle Paul. Not all the time, but at strategic times. We've already seen uh, how many years of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and he's not doing miracles every time he opens his mouth or takes a step or goes into a city. It's been rare, actually. We've seen that. It happens, but it's spontaneous here and there. In Ephesus, it happened. Paul was allowed to do miracles of a frequency he had never been allowed to before and probably didn't after that either. And also, he was allowed to do miracles he'd never done before. He was allowed to do miracles that we had never seen before, they had never seen before. He he was able to do miracles that would never be repeated after Paul. It was an extraordinary period of ministry. And it was so important because during this time of two years, Paul is planting churches. Paul is writing many of his 13 or several of his 13 epistles. Ephesus becomes the headquarters of Christianity in the then known world. So God graciously endorsed the ministry of Paul with amazing, inimitable miracles that couldn't be repeated by anybody. Showing it was the hand of Almighty God. So the proof of the word was validated by apostolic ministries. Verse 11, God God was performing, see, God. Was Paul doing the miracles? God was performing the miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit, through Paul. Paul was the vehicle. God was performing not just miracles. The, the Greek phrase here is very specific in terms of its word order. Here's literally what it says. God was performing works of power, not the ordinary ones. It's a unique phrase. Because, first of all, miracles were not ordinary. They were extraordinary. They were supernatural. So miracles were rare in the first place. But then Luke says, not only was he doing miracles, he was doing extraordinary miracles. Miracles we hadn't seen before. And that's why the Greek, the word order says, God was performing works of power and not the ordinary ones. God was doing miracles, but not ones you have seen before. So they were particularly unique. That's why the NASB says extraordinary miracle. I mean, any miracle is extraordinary. These were really, really extraordinary. Like I said, because of the nature of them and the frequency of them, God was performing extraordinary miracles. Notice, by the hands of Paul, see, that's, Consistent all throughout the book of Acts. It's not, you become a Christian and you'll be able to do miracles. You become a Christian and you can do signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. No! That's false hope that false preachers tell people. This is through the apostle. God was performing extraordinary, amazing, unbelievable, unique, never seen before, never to be repeated again, miracles by the hands of the apostle Paul to validate his ministry. Well, what was so amazing and extraordinary and unique about them, Luke, really tells us in verse 12, here's what was going on. So that to the point that even, I mean, we've seen miracles before, like casting out a demon, laying hands on a sick person, and they rise up, they couldn't walk. I mean, those are amazing. But here's a new one in verse 12. Even to the point that handkerchiefs, what is that? Actually, headscarf, head wrapping is literally what it is. What is that? It's probably something Paul wore when he worked as a tent maker. It was hot and to keep the, it was a headband to keep the sweat from dripping all over his face and his apron that he wore as a tent maker. This is hard, arduous work. No air conditioning. Sweating all over the place. And so Paul routinely had these, uh, headbands and aprons that he used. And they'd get dirty and soiled, and he'd leave them hanging around, and he'd get some extra ones, and the disciples would find, oh, there's Paul's handkerchief. Oh, there's Paul's extra ape Paul, can I have this? Or maybe they didn't even ask him. Maybe they just stole it. So that handkerchiefs or head coverings and aprons from Paul were even carried from his body to the sick. See, they took that from Paul, and they took it to sick people at home. Yeah, my sick grandmother, she couldn't make it out here to Paul, so they would take his garments, they'd take it back to the sick, and get this, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. this is weird took the here's wow here's Paul's apron here touch this Boom, healing uh, demon possessed person here's paul's cloth boom demon gone, chased away I mean that, that is extraordinary that is now caution this verse twelve doesn't comment about what God thought of that he allowed it. It was not normative, normative. By the way, verse 12, it doesn't say, and this is what you should do, Christian. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say this should be repeated all throughout the history of the church. It doesn't say that because we have people today, especially on television, Christian television, literally. Early on when I was a Christian and I believed in miracles and all kinds of stuff by virtue of the church I was going to, I would see these guys on television and they would have holy cloths that they prayed over and touched. And for only $1599 on the bottom address, maybe it was twenty nine ninety nine. dollars uh, send us uh, whatever in the mail, and then we will send you one of these prayer cloths, and then hold it, touch it, sleep on it, whatever, and God will heal you. Really? Really? That's shenanigans. That is perversion. That is a distortion of biblical truth. And people do that, and they do it usually for the money. So if you flip through your Christian channels... On TV, even today, you can see that. The prayer, you can look for the holy oil or ointment and then the holy little piece of cloth. Don't fall for it. It's very deceptive. But for whatever reason, that unique period in time in history, through that unique man, the Apostle Paul, God did amazing miracles to validate his ministry. So the priority of the word, the proof of the word, and then let's look at number three, the perversion of the word charlatans, false prophets, false teachers. We have had them since almost the beginning of time. We continue to have them all throughout the church age. They were all throughout the Old Testament. We have them today. They're everywhere. And they sneak into churches. They sneak into Christian community. They get on Christian radio. They sneak into uh, Christian conferences, the Christian bookstore, Christian churches, Christian discipleship groups. They're everywhere. They don't relent. They're the underlings of Satan. They will always be with us until Christ comes again. Jesus said so. All the apostles warned us about this. The perversion of the word, the twisting of Scripture. And that's what happens in 13 through 17. Look at it. So Paul's doing these amazing, extraordinary miracles that people are just, they can't believe. Wow, that was undeniable. That was awesome. I've never seen anything like that. I've read the Old Testament. I've never even seen that in the Old Testament. This Paul guy, and it's legit. I've witnessed it with my own eyes. So the reputation of the apostle Paul spread quickly all throughout the city of Ephesus and beyond. And so Paul has gained a reputation as an apostle, spokesperson of God, authoritative prophet, and also a miracle worker like no other. And some observe that his methodology doesn't seem to change. He he believes in this Jesus person. He even invokes the name of Jesus at times. Hey, let's do that. Maybe it's in the power of this incantation of the name Jesus. False religionists believe that in Paul's day, and they still do today, that there are magical uh things, incantations. Of, you can just recite a name. That's kind of like at the heart of Hinduism. In terms of the mantra, the holy secret mantra that you're given, it's a name of a, a deity. Like the most famous one is OM, OM. And if you do meditation and you just... Quietly repeat, om, 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 on and, on and on and on and on, then some kind of magical, mystical, supernatural things are supposed to, have. invoking the name of a deity. That's occultic, it's illegit, but that's what these guys thought. Oh, the name, let's try invoking that name. It seems to have a lot of power to it. Verse 13. Here's the perversion of Paul's ministry in the Word of God. But also some of the Jewish exorcists, the Jews, so they said they believed in the Old Testament, but they were mystical, they were phony, they were false religionists, they were exorcists. They claimed to be able to cast out demons. They did this for money, by the way. They were phonies. They didn't really believe in the truth about the Old Testament. They conveniently took it pragmatically to make money and, a, and really take advantage of people, to go to weak people, sick people, Take advantage of them. Pass yourself off as a prophet. You can cast out demons. You have authority over the evil ones and over sickness. Give me your money. I'll do you whatever. And then people did. They gave them money for this. They were manipulating religion, manipulating weak people. This still goes on today. And they are myopic. They are focused on one thing. They're not going out preaching the kingdom of God, the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation. They are myopic. It's always one thing. That's what a false prophet. Always, he's got a one trick pony. It's his gig. Superficial, shallow. They're not preaching the gospel. Their are is, exos- Well, we only do one thing. I don't study Genesis. I just do one thing. I don't know Romans. I just do one thing. I don't pray for people. I just do one thing. What do you do? I cast out demons for a buck or two. And that's who these guys are, verse 13. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus. So here they were. These Jewish exorcists, they're going throughout the town. They're finding people who are possessed by demons and they're pronouncing the name of Jesus over these demon-possessed people. I command you to come out in the name of Jesus. That's kind of interesting because today your average unbelieving Orthodox Jew hates the name of Jesus. They can't even stand listening to that name if you're in their presence. They get angry many times. These guys were going to use it for what they could squeeze out of it. So abusing the name of Jesus, taking Jesus' name in vain, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches, which is kind of funny. So it wasn't of their own origin. That guy over there, that Paul guy has a lot of success. I cast you out in the name of Jesus by whom Paul preaches. So seven sons of Sceva, seven sons, a Jewish chief priest, So there's this Jewish exorcist guy. He's either a chief priest. Actually, he's probably a self-proclaimed chief priest. That was probably on his placard and his business card and on the front of his wagon as he went from town to town. Chief priest, self-proclaimed. I do one thing. I do exorcisms. And he's got seven sons making his sons work for him, teaches them this trade. And they're going out from place to place as itinerant demon caster routers. And they try to do it with the name of Jesus. And so they're they're over these demon-possessed people. Come out in the name of Jesus. Come out in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Come out in the name of Jesus. And then finally, uh, verse 15, the evil spirit answered and said to these phony guys, here's the demon talking. I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? I mean, that is comical. That is absolutely hilarious. It's true, but it's hilarious. So the, the demon starts talking about, you, you guys are phony. Verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on the seven sons and the dad. Leaped on them and subdued all of them. What does that mean? Beat them up. This guy's powerful. Demons are powerful. So demon, the demon is working through this man. He overpowers eight men, beats them all up. Not only that, uh, subdued all of them, overpowered them so that they fled out, chased them out. They're scared as can be. Chased them out of the house naked and wound, ripped off all their clothes. And wounded and bleeding. And they flee out. These eight guys are probably well-known in the area and the surrounding regions. And so this word gets out. There's a reputation. People hear about it. Did you hear what happened to the seven sons of Sceva and how they got beat up by the the devil and they tried to abuse Jesus' name and they went out naked and ashamed and bleeding all over? That was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. Did you hear about that? That's how the word got out. Verse 17, this became known to everybody. In Ephesus and the surrounding region there, in Asia, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus. So what was the result? Well, it did two things. It exposed the phonies and chased the, the, the pseudo-religionists away. But it also validated the true ministry of Paul. And it said, fear fell upon them all. Fear fell. That was a good fear. That's a healthy fear. That's a holy fear. Sinners need to have a fear of God and what he can do. Fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. See that? You don't mess with Jesus, and you don't mess with the name of Jesus. Although in our culture, a lot of people get away with it, don't they? They use Jesus as a swear word, Jesus as a cuss word, Jesus flippantly, Jesus inappropriately, or sometimes they invoke Jesus's name for their false views and false religion. They're not going to get away with it. That's one of the Ten Commandments: Do not take the name of the Lord thy God in in vain. Do not misuse God's name. Jesus is the name of God. Jesus is Yahweh. Don't mess with Jesus' name. And if you look at the fourth commandment, or one of the first four commandments where it says, don't misuse God's name, it goes on, if you read the rest of it, it says, whoever does will be punished by God. Whoever does won't get away with it. So whenever you hear somebody... Say you're in the workplace. It happens all the time in the workplace, secular workplace, at the office, at the construction yard, behind the cash register, Jesus Christ. Sometimes I will say, oh, I love him, too. Or I'll say, oh, you know, Jesus. And just spark up a little conversation. It's a great inroads. And then usually they panic and freak out and turn white and and they know instantly that was wrong. There's something about the name of Jesus that just brings automatic guilt to the sinner if they misuse his name. The most powerful name in the world. These guys didn't know it. They pervert the word of God. Number four, finally, the power. The power of the word of God when it is preached clearly and thoroughly, when it's preached by a true Christian and someone who's faithful in ministry and a godly example and bathed in prayer on softened hearts, God's word does its work like nothing else and that's number four the power of the word the power of the gospel the power of scripture what does it do it changes lives if you're a christian there's one of the main reasons you are a christian today is because of the power of the word of god in scripture that's first P- or peter chapter one it says you became born again and me through the living and abiding word of god You didn't become a Christian because you went on a mountaintop and said, oh, creation is so beautiful. I believe in God. And then boom, you're no. You can't become a Christian apart from scripture. You can't become a Christian apart from the gospel that's in the Bible. Somewhere in your testimony, if you're truly born again, it comes down to when you heard the word of God in the form of the gospel. You have been born again by the living and abiding word of God. Scripture, the gospel, biblical truth. That's the only way to be saved. It's the only way to be a Christian. It's the only way to know God. You can't know the true God of the universe. You can't have your sins forgiven. You can't have any hope of heaven and eternity apart from the gospel in the Bible. Very clear. That's why Paul is committed to doing what he's doing. He knows that. People are lost without the truth of the Bible. He knows that's where the resident power is. Verses 18 through 20. So look at the consequences and the results and the byproduct of this amazing power that's in Scripture. Verse 18. Many also of those who had believed. Okay, people heard. They truly believed. So they were truly born again, regenerate, new creations. They were new on the inside. God did something supernatural. He put His Spirit of God in them. And so now there are new desires. They're not perfect people, but they are new, new on the inside. New desires, new longings, new understanding, new goals. They, they hate new things. They love new things. If you're truly born, what do you hate? You, when you become a Christian, there are things you should now hate that you used to love. Starting with, you hate sin. You hate lies. You hate destruction. You hate deception. You hate people being lost. You hate, you hate all those things. There are things about yourself you hate because sin lives in you. If you're a Christian. Pastor Cliff, did you say you hate yourself? Well, listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans seven fourteen through 25. At the height of his maturity as a Christian and as an apostle, he said, looking, dwelling within himself, he concluded, O wretched man that I am. That sounds like he is disgusted with himself. Not the Holy Spirit who lives in, but he's disgusted with himself. He knows it. That's an honest diagnosis of your own heart. And that should be true of every Christian. Because we have sin living in us. That's the battle. You have the Holy Spirit living in you, sin living in you. And so these people are truly born again. They are new. And so as a result, there are fruits fitting with their repentance. What are they doing? They kept coming. So the new believers kept coming and kept coming. They're coming publicly. They're maybe coming to Paul and the church and at his feet. What are they doing? They are disclosing their practices. They're confessing. That should be a discipline of a real Christian is an ongoing confession that you have. Always asking God, search my heart, forgive me. Forgive me for recent sins, unknown sins. That should be the regular beat of a Christian's heart. It was for King David in the Old Testament. So they're continually confessing. They're disclosing their dirty deeds and their former practices that were wrongful and uh, destructive. Verse 19, and many of those who practiced magic, which was very prominent in Ephesus with all its false religion, who practiced magic and all kinds of forms of the occult, they brought their books or literally scrolls from white magic, black magic that was rampant where they lived. That's how they grew up. They took those so-called sacred, valuable scrolls that were worth a lot of money and instead of exchanging them or just getting rid of them or trying to sell them on eBay for a buck, what were they doing? They didn't care how much they were worth. They began burning them in the sight of everyone. Public testimony. I love God. I love Jesus. I hate sin. I hate the devil. I hate what it did to me and I'm going to burn it and make a public display of it. I'm giving my life to Christ. This is true Reformation. The occult. Bad books. Dark books. Misleading and deceptive, dangerous books. You know, I began to think, when I was early on, it kind of dawned on me this week. Wow, when I was in my 20s, I remember at one time, I got my seven, what, my 12 Stephen King books. Stephen King, horror writer. <laughs> they were all like 900 pages long. Like a whole box of them. And I ended up getting rid of them. Not because I read this passage. It was just. There are things when you become a Christian that you look back in your life, you once cherished and adored, you just don't you don't like it anymore. You hate it. You're almost embarrassed. That was disgusting. How could I like that? How could I do that? So this is a beautiful thing, um, and it's a public testimony. And they counted up the price of all the books that they burned that were so valuable with the scrolls, and they found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver or millions of dollars in modern-day terminology millions of dollars so the word of the lord was growing mightily and prevailing there in Ephesus. i want to leave you with this challenge go to philippians we'll close with this and then go into communion in philippians chapter go to philippians chapter 4 this is just a good reminder in conjunction with corinthians which says examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith so stop pause do a diagnosis evaluate your life be honest look at your heart what are your disciplines? What do you think about? What are the routines and patterns you've gotten into? Have you gotten into sinful patterns over time after being a Christian? Have you gotten into sinful habits that you do around the house or the channels that you turn to on the television or the music that you listen to or the books that you read or the sites that you see on your computer or the things that you have allowed in your home that when you first became a Christian, you would never tolerate that. We all do it. We all lower the bar over time because we become callous examine yourself examine yourself so look at philippians i just think this is a great way to examine ourselves it's not legalistic if you do it this way because there's uh, some wiggle room and some freedom and challenge for us to talk to god about what's right and wrong not your neighbor do you think i should get rid of this cd yes well i don't want to i like the cd uh, Philippians 4. So, my, my challenge to you as a result of this is let's be like these Christians in Ephesus when they first got saved. Everything was fresh, new, and they were willing to go before God. God, examine my life, examine my words, examine my habits, examine my hobbies, examine the things I love, where I spend my time, my free time, my work time, what I invest in, how I spend my money, my collection of books, my collection of music, whatever it is, and vet it all through Philippians, right here. Finally, brethren, Verse 8, Philippians 4, 8, finally, brethren, whatever is true. So if it's in keeping with the truth of the Bible, meditate on it, live by it, think about it, absorb it. So if you've got a bunch of songs you're listening to all the time that aren't true, that are just blatantly false and wrong or books you're reading, the contradicts, why are you doing that? Why are you absorbing that in your mind? Why are you thinking about it? Don't do that. It has an effect on you, us, it really does. It's detrimental, it's destructive, it undermines what you really want to do in life, and that's growing Christ. So, finally, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, those horror flicks with all the blood squirting all over the place, I don't know if those are honorable. Uh, Whatever is right, so if it's wrong, don't do it. Whatever is pure and holy and sin, so if it's blatantly immoral, don't do it, don't look at it, have nothing to do with it, it's a good challenge. Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence from God's point of view, and if anything worthy of praise from the biblical point of view, then dwell on these things. Think on these things. Meditate on these things. Be absorbed in your thinking with these things. And then maybe as you go through everything in your household and in your life as you lay before God, you can have a bonfire in the backyard. And your kids come out. Mom and Dad, why are you burning those VHS videos? Well, I just read Acts 19. And I talked to God about it. But we used to enjoy those on Friday nights with popcorn. I know. I'm a hypocrite. Sorry, son. But this is just a good practical challenge. God will honor you as Israel. Don't become a legalist through this, but that's why you've got to really lay it before God. Meditate on this. And also, Romans 14, it's got to be your decision. It's got to be your decision between you and God and Scripture. As each man is convinced in his own mind. That's what Romans 14 says. And you'll be blessed. You will be blessed with that. Let's go ahead. We're going to partake in communion. Now the Lord's table and I would invite everybody here who is a Christian. And you know, Jesus Christ This is really a time of celebration and Thanksgiving. So what communion is, is just thanking God for salvation and thanking Jesus for dying on the cross for you, rising again from the dead, ascending into heaven giving you the gift of eternal life giving his holy spirit to you in the new covenant ongoing forgiveness of sin adopting him or he's adopted you into his family it's a beautiful thing and that's what we do with communion it's just a rem- it's a visual reminder of all these great things god has done for the believing sinner let me read from first corinthians 11 as uh we'll have our ushers now go ahead and distribute uh the cup so as the plate comes by just grab one cup because it's got both the the drink and the bread inside of it, hold on to that for a moment and then we'll partake together after I read our scripture and then pray. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul reminds Christians to take communion and also of its meaning. Uh, Verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11 says, For I received from the Lord, that's Jesus, through divine revelation, that which also I delivered to you when I started your church at Corinth, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed just before his death, he took bread, which we're going to do today. And when he had given thanks. And that's what we need to do. It's time of Thanksgiving. Jesus broke the bread, passed it out to his disciples, and he said, this is my body. It represents my body. It re- represents my life. I'm going to give my life for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So when you do this, remember that I died for you as your substitute in the same way he took the cup to drink after supper saying this cup is the new covenant that comes right out of the Old Testament promise from God regarding the Holy Spirit this cup is the new covenant my blood so we celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit who lives in us as believers because of Jesus' death on our behalf do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me celebrate me be thankful to me for your salvation for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again so we're making a proclamation today. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, if you do it flippantly or illegitimately, if you're not a Christian, you shouldn't be taking communion. Um, if you have a hardened heart and you're cultivating sin in your heart towards somebody, don't do that. That's to your detriment. It's a time of confession before God. Don't do it in an unworthy manner. If you do, you'll you'll be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But each person, every believer, must examine themselves, and in so doing, then you can eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So it's a time of celebration, examination, and thankfulness to our God for what he's done on our behalf if you know Jesus Christ personally that's that's just a wonderful blessed reality and blessed truth uh with that i'm just going to give you a minute to meditate in your own heart uh while we have the music playing and just and just talk to god now and thank him and also confess your sin Jesus said to do this in his memory let's eat and drink together I'm going to go ahead and close us in prayer before our final song would you pray with me Father we do thank you for this day that you have given us a day of uh of worship, of fellowship with the saints, an opportunity to study your word together today to celebrate communion. Thank you for teaching us through the book of Acts, catching our memory, some practical realities that we can take away from Acts 19 and what we saw in the days of the Apostle Paul, as you are the same God. You want to bless your people in the same way. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for salvation that came through the gospel. In your word, Lord Jesus, we thank you for being such a gracious and blessed Savior. Continue to work on our hearts with your Holy Spirit and lead us day by day, step by step. We pray that you're glorified in all that we do this morning as we commit it to you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.